Welcome back to Tears, Tides, and Transformation, a podcast about healing. I am Bridget Flaherty. And I'm Kiana Daniels. And today we're speaking with Perna Devi, who is a trauma-informed spiritual healer. And I actually met Perna when she was practicing trauma-informed massage. And I went to her to work through some trauma that I uh, had related to my ex-husband, and I knew it was in my body. And I knew that... I needed a massage therapist who was trauma-informed, and she was incredible. A lot of emotions came up. I'm, I'm crying. And what she did is had time before and after the physical massage to process through that with me. And it was incredible. Actually, I'll never forget the experience. But today, she's moved on from massage into spiritual mentorship, Reiki, hypnotherapy, and past life regression. And because she's a trauma survivor herself, as well as a trauma-informed yoga instructor, she creates safe spaces for people to heal themselves. She was kind of clear about that, that she creates the space, but that each of us heal ourselves. I am Porna Davy, and I am a healer, a medium. I do hypnotherapy, past life regression, healing work, spiritual mentorship in Dayton, and all over because I'm on Zoom as well. And I help people come into their power, mostly women and non-binary friends. And I have some trans clients as well. And really, it's about people remembering who they are and how to assert that in the world and come into alignment with their uh, joy and their purpose. With that, can you talk maybe a little bit about how being trauma-informed has been an important part of your healing work? Well, I think it's a huge part of the work that I do. One, because I am a survivor of trauma myself. And so while I have these certificates and depth and breadth of actual knowledge, I have a deep wisdom, I think, that comes from lived experience. And within any session I do, I notice that I tend to attract the type of client that I also am. And so there's a relatability and there is a trust and a safety. And I think when you are doing trauma-informed care, the person feeling safe is just so important and really integral, right? If you don't create a safe space for them to really become empowered and do their own healing work, and you just assist and guide and support and love and meet them where they are for them to do that work, you're not going to get very far and, and they're not going to be able to go as deep maybe as they need to go to retrieve that sovereignty and retrieve that power that maybe they've lost through their traumatic experiences. That's incredible. I can completely relate to the idea that my personal experiences help me to create safe spaces for other folks who have gone through similar experiences and how healing that can be, honestly, for both sides. Truly. It's my life's work, but my life's work stems from my own personal journey. And I really think that that's quite a privilege 
to be on the other side of my own healing experience to be able to share that gift and to be an example and to walk that deep, dark path that it sometimes takes to get onto the other side of your healing experience. I think that we can relate to how impactful lived experience can have a huge influence on our work. Absolutely. I credit my lived experiences to how I show up and I honor them, the good and the bad, right? And not everybody has gotten to a place of being able to do that. But because I'm a person, I've learned to appreciate the lessons in the lived experiences. Whatever happened in my life, you know, there was a lesson to be learned. And so I oftentimes bring them up. I reflect back because that had to happen for this to happen, right? So I I 100% resonate with that. And, you know, I think that we have these conversations and in them, we are creating safe spaces. But the truth is, we are able to do that because we have experienced a lot of similar things, right? And that lived experience allows us to have empathy, right? Brene Brown says you can't step into someone else's shoes, right? It's not possible, But when you have had similar experiences, it's easier to have that empathy, to go to the places with the other and to be that safe space. And so there's power in transforming lived experience into safe space and healing for others. Yep. That's uh, the story of our lives. (laughs) (laughs) So Perna found Eastern philosophies and Eastern modalities young. I was diagnosed with CPTSD, depression, anxiety, all of the things they love to throw at you when I was about 18 or 19 years old. And a lot of childhood trauma came out that I had stuffed down, that I had sedated, right, with drugs and alcohol, that I had avoided, that I did not have a safe family unit to explore. And finally, these things started coming out, and you could really see them presenting themselves in textbook ways. So I did therapy. I was in a mental health ward for a week, you know, and they wanted to sedate me and I felt like I was a vegetable. The adults really failed me, it felt like. And so that gave me, I think, a resiliency and a dedication to self-care and self-love and also Eastern philosophies and Eastern modalities and energy practices and yoga and Reiki and all of these things that the Western medicine world really did not provide me. They just wanted to sedate the symptoms of how I was acting out because no one really wanted to confront the issues. They wanted to stay in denial of the fact that I was walking around this really burdened child, 18-year-old, young girl, you know, 19 years old. So that just set me on this whole 20-year path. I'll be 40 next year. And for the last 20 years, it's been an exploration that started actually in Buddhism and Hinduism and then yoga practices, yoga philosophy, yoga asana, energy healing. And I've just kept going down deeper into these rabbit holes of the subconscious mind and how the subconscious mind stores these things. And here we are. That's a lot. So why don't we break it down a little bit? So those are a lot of terms and a lot of 
different approaches. So let's start first with when you say Eastern philosophies, Eastern modalities. Let's break down maybe Buddhism and Hinduism and how you came to learn more and then how those practices show up in today. Absolutely. Well, I went to University of Dayton straight out of high school, actually while I was still in high school. So I was an overachiever, a perfectionist, a people pleaser, right? That's one of the ways in which my trauma showed up, was just always overachieving and staying busy and being top of my class. So I went to University of Dayton, where I was pretty disgruntled that they force you to take a religion class. And I was a self-proclaimed atheist at that time. But I took a world religion class. And I will never forget, I fell in love with this Catholic nun. Her name was Sister Judith Martin. So if you're out there, Sister Judith Martin, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being such a turning point in my life. She taught religion classes and philosophy classes at UD. And And she considered herself a Hindu Buddhist Christian. And she blew my mind because I thought, you can do that. You don't have to just be one thing. So I took every class that she offered. I ended up transferring my major from communications to world religion and philosophy and took women and religion, Buddhism, and all of these Eastern philosophy classes. And the main tenets of Buddhism that really appealed to me at the time It gave a pathway to support suffering. The first tenets of Buddhism say suffering is imminent. Being human is suffering. And the cessation of suffering is possible. And the root of suffering is attachment and desire. And let's look at your suffering and let's use chanting and meditation techniques, breathing techniques, mindfulness techniques detaching from old stories, detaching from chasing after one thing or the next to try to satiate and fill whatever is presenting as a void, right? And so that, as far as Buddhism is concerned, that's kind of how that came into my life. And I was always in the physical body, dancing and in kick line and, you know, doing these physical practices. So I worked at a gym in high school, a women's gym. And I took a yoga class from this very old woman with long white hair. And I remember giggling during the class while she was chanting. And it's funny now to look back, you know, 30 years later, that was like a glimpse into my future. So that really set me on the path of being interested in yoga. And so then I took my first yoga training in 2010 after I had my son. And I knew I still had... Uh, lifetimes of unresolved impressions inside me that I wanted to work through. And I fell in love with yoga philosophy, with the Vedas from India. And those belief systems just really resonated with me in a way that I did not find that alignment in the Christian church. I did not find it in that hell and brimfire story or that shaming and fear-based guilting to become better. Guilt and shame never make anyone change. It just makes them feel bad about not changing, right? Can you talk a little bit more about the Vedas? The Vedas are like India's Bible, right? So there are many, many, many texts. And uh, the Bhagavad Gita is one. The Yoga Sutras are one. The Ramayana. They're these epic stories. And, you know, they're not necessarily a lot different than biblical stories in certain ways. They're very epic. They're very colorful. 
in the Vedas, we see an idea that Brahman, that the divine creator, that God, is very multifaceted. A lot of people mistake that Hinduism is polytheistic and that they worship many gods. And that really is very incorrect. It recognizes that divinity is multifaceted and not just masculine. And so we see all of these different archetypes and uh, ways in which divinity shows up. And then they personify them with all these colorful, beautiful characters that, for me, it's very opulent and I'm attracted to shiny things. So it's really a fun spiritual path to go down if you're interested. I love that. I don't know a whole lot about Buddhism, but Perna's description of the ways in which Buddhist teachings have shaped her belief system, especially around suffering, I think I want to learn more about it. Another thing is we talk about how powerful words are, right? So those words altogether, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, blew her mind, right? And words are so powerful. When we're able to name things, we can transform them, but also sometimes the combination of words together can just open so many doors, right? We don't know what we don't know. And when new things are presented to us, it's like a opening. It's like a mind opening, right? Right. You know what? It's, that makes me laugh because sometimes I don't want to choose. So in me not wanting to choose, I'm just like, can we mix these two things? And let's just see what happens there. And people will look at me like, you're always mixing things. You're always like merging. And it makes sense in how I show up, right? Like in some of what my gifts are, which is being a convener and connector, right? And so it's really interesting to me that Buddhism, Christianity, and Hinduism those things together, because it is the complexities of all of those things together that allowed her to start to kind of go on her journey of transformation and evolution and all of those things. Because I, too, believe that you can take pieces from things. Maybe you don't resonate with all things like I have a Christian base. But I don't resonate with all of the doctrines and the traditions. And so I, too, take things from Christianity and other religions where I'm like, well, what are the principles that speak to me? So I love that. Yes. She shared that after her son was born in 2019, she's still in therapy, but she still has this like feeling that she's banging her head against her stories. So for the first 10 years, I think of my spiritual awakening, my journey, right? I was still very young. I was still drinking alcohol. I was still doing a lot of the things that slowed my growth and my progress. And then I had my son in 2009, and you've had children, so you know how that just really changes your perspective on things. And I'm like, I've got to get my shit together. <laughs> and so after I had my son, I'm in therapy, I'm in Western counseling, I'm still just banging my head against the story, and then the story just proliferates. And I find myself being really drawn to this yoga teacher training program in Dayton, Ohio, that Sri Yoga Studio, it doesn't even exist anymore, but I became part of that yoga teacher training program. I'm doing yoga, you know, three hours a day. I'm training very diligently. And so I start teaching yoga in 2010 at other people's studios. And very quickly, I fell in love with the philosophy there. And then as I'm teaching in other people's studios, I'm noticing I'm not the kind of teacher that wants to teach people how to stand on their head or do downward facing dog. I like to go deep. 
I want to help people understand themselves and to look inward and to really confront what's going on in their minds and in their hearts and see what's blocking them from their forward movement in whatever direction they want. So I kept specializing in restorative and in children's yoga and yoga at the Montessori School for several years. And many years ago, I did trauma-informed care, and that's really something clicked for me. And again, I noticed that people weren't coming to me to learn to stand on their head. They were staying after class and crying about how they were abused or the relationship they were in that they didn't feel like they were validated or could express boundaries in or whatever the thing was. And so it really just kept presenting itself. And I just kept showing up with reality as reality was mirroring to me who I was as a practitioner and a healer. And I can really relate to this too, right? Because as I pursued my personal healing, I found that I attracted others who were on similar journeys, right? So people who either needed to be supported or were supporters on that journey. And then I'm challenged to step up. For Perna, it was becoming trauma-informed. For me, it was like starting lore and giving people a platform to share their stories or talking with you and starting this podcast, right? So it makes sense. It definitely makes sense. I am a believer of... If you genuinely have a good heart, you don't want people to go through the same things that you've gone through exactly the way that you've gone through them. You may want to give them a heads up or share your lessons so that people cannot make the same mistakes that you made. And that is a transferable, I think, practice because it's the same thing in like mentorship. That's why that is so important. So I agree 100%. I'm a person that likes to create space to help people not have to go through what I went through so that they can get a head start. Yes. And I also think, too, there's a process to that, right, too. So it isn't like we jump into an internal healing process with an end goal in mind of creating a podcast, for example, or writing a book or becoming trauma-informed. It is, I am taking yoga teacher training because I want it for me, right? And I am teaching yoga because I believe in these philosophies. And being open to those steps, to the what comes next is also really important for creating those spaces. And it has to start with our healing. Yes, that's exactly what happens time and time again. And the truth is the healing process is how we learn to hear that voice, right? In patterns of self-destruction and self-sabotage, We can't hear that voice. We can't hear that intuition. And it's only by taking the steps of self-healing, taking the steps and working with teachers that we learn how to hear our intuition so that we can follow it and create those spaces. And something that came up for me is like we start with it being about us, but then it becomes about others. And so Almost always, if you feel that feeling or hear that voice of your work turning into helping others, that's a genuine feeling. But when it feels like it's just you're doing it for your upliftment or for your name to be out in lights or something like that, then you kind of know that it's a little bit selfish and not a genuine and authentic feeling of helping others. And that's where intuition really is important and learning how to know the difference between a calling and an ego. Perna then continued her 
personal healing as well as her offerings as a healer. In 2012, she decided to step up her healing game and she took a Reiki energy healing training program and she began to practice Reiki healing. In 2011, I think it was, I was doing a yoga class and there was a Reiki master in my class. And I'm doing some small minor adjustment at the end during Shavasana, you know, when everybody lays out and gets super relaxed. And she comes up to me afterwards and she says, do you know what Reiki is? And I said, I have no idea. And she said, well, you're doing it. And I think you need to look into energy healing, energy trading. And I said, okay. And then, of course, as the beautiful synchronistic divinity would have it, the universe presented at that same yoga studio where I was teaching a Reiki training. And so in 2011, 2012, I received lots of Reiki trainings in two different lineages. So very quickly, people started coming to me for healing sessions. And I then left those yoga studios, most of them, to rent space out of an office in Centerville and started in private yoga, small group yoga, right, mostly women doing deep care, chakra trainings, and energy healing sessions. And then in 2013, right, I went and dove deeper into the body because it seems like the body is really the access point, especially here in the West. We're so physically obsessed, right? And so to talk about people's energies, the mainstream population wants to come in for a good massage. So if my hands were on, then the energy was running. And so I really built a very strong business through massage and then had these other things, you know, that weren't necessarily my bread and butter, but were always on the menu. And then that started to shift, right? The older I've gotten, the less physical massage I can physically do without harming my own self. And the more these spiritual and energy opportunities kept showing up. And I had to take a leap of faith, actually, last year and completely retired my massage branch of the business and went full-time as a spiritual teacher. I felt like I was kind of coming out of the closet in a way, right? And, you know, I said, oh, I'm going to really start to let people know that I'm a psychic medium and that I'm intuitive and do these things. And then all my students and clients that have known me for years laughed, and they're like, of course you are. And so it feels really good now to embody myself completely as a spiritual teacher, as a mentor, and really now energy healing has seemed to kind of take a back seat. And now I have just this past year really dove deeper into the subconscious mind through hypnotherapy and past life regression. And that is 20 years in the making because I read the book Many Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss. Dr. Brian Weiss is a big name in past life regression therapy, and he's like a psychotherapist that was very schooled in the scientific method and very westernized. And then he had a girl coming to him that had unexplainable symptoms that seemed her life should be perfectly together. And he started doing hypnosis with her, and all of a sudden he's down a rabbit hole, and she's channeling past life messages for him. And he's like, holy cannoli, okay, here we are. And so 20 years ago, again, I had a glimpse into my future, and now I'm starting to offer these modalities myself. That's incredible. I would like to um, get some definitions. Surely. Let's start with what is 
Reiki. Okay, perfect. We get that question all the time. And I hope my level one Reiki students are listening and then they are taking notes because that is a huge question that gets asked when you're a Reiki practitioner. I'll give you like the westernized short version and then I'll give you my version. So the very standard definition is it's a Japanese modality of natural healing that supports stress reduction and relaxation. It's so like whitewashed, right? The reality is everything is Reiki. Rei translates, R-E-I. Rei translates as gods, divine, light, consciousness. And ki is energy, chi in Chinese, prana in Sanskrit and yoga philosophy, bioplasm in science. Right? And most people are familiar with the word aura. So that already lets us know that most people have an understanding that we're more than just a physical body. We're an energy body. We carry energy throughout our being. And Reiki is the name for that energy, but it's also the name of a system of techniques, of meditations, of precepts, right? of prescription. Every philosophy and religion has sort of a code of conduct, code of ethics. And so the code in Reiki is just for today, I will not anger. Just for today, I will not worry. Just for today, I will be honest in my work and my life is my work. I like to tag that part on, right? Not just when you clock in and clock out of your business. Just for today, I will be grateful for my abundant blessings. And then just for today, I will be compassionate to myself first and then to others. And so it's really a system of becoming those tenets and a system of enhancing your life in every single way through hands-on healing, which a lot of the Western world has taken Reiki and deduced it to hands-on healing, just in the same way the Western world has taken yoga and deduced it to downward-facing dog and physical practices that make me look good in yoga pants. Right. So it's quite an expansive spiritual practice, non-religion specific, though it is rooted. The founder, Yusui Mikeo, was schooled in a Buddhist temple and was a martial art master. He was a Shugendo practitioner, which are ancient shamanic practices. You know, imagine a bunch of old Asian men in their kimonos or their garb on the top of a mountain, prostrating and fasting and tuning into universal wisdom in that way. So he was a master in every way. And the story goes, he was on top of Mount Kurama in Japan in like 1922. So it's a fairly modern practice as far as the history of energy practices go in humanity. And he was doing these practices and he got struck with a lightning bolt. The great Reiki wisdom came to him. And so at that time in Japan and a lot of Eastern cultures, they keep things very private through family lineage. There's a caste, you pass on information and wisdom and profession through family lineage. And I think Yusui was quite a badass. Like he was such a radical because he said, I'm not going to keep this information for myself. We are in a time that we are in a suffering world. And every time I think about this, I choke up because I relate that to where we are now in our culture and our world. 
right? There are so many people that are suffering because of disconnection from source, because of the disconnection with themselves, because of the illusion and the denial and the grief and the suffering they carry in their own mind. And so then they act out and try to gain control of other people or harm themselves or harm other people, right? And so this practice, I know this is a very long-winded explanation of this amazing, life-changing practice that I teach and share and do myself as a student. But it's just so prolific and profound the way that this practice from the early 1900s has found its way here to the Western world because we need it. If I wanted to get started with a Reiki practice, how would I get started? You find someone who can help support you. Now, you can go to, I call it Guru Google, <laughs> and type in Reiki, and you're going to get million hits of different books. Um, I have studied through two different lineages and hold master certificates in two different lineages. And I want to say it's something about the term master as well, because I say that term because here I am in the Western world and people relate to that. But I think also we have such an idea of hierarchy in this culture that's a bit skewed. So being a Reiki master just means I'm working to master my own mind. I am becoming master of my own life. I'm not a master over anyone else. right? And so I just want to say that as a side note to all the Reiki masters I see out there, you know, and, and calling ourselves masters, but maybe have not mastered our own minds yet. So find someone that you trust. I see these Reiki trainings all over, and I'm going to sound a little judgmental because I am judging this negatively. I see these Reiki trainings that you can go and get level one and level two trained in four hours. I work with people for months. My beginning programs are multiple hours. My group trainings are two months long. And here in this drive-through culture, we want to get in and get out, right? And I think there's a lot of spiritual bypassing going on. I know I'm kind of going down a different rabbit hole of conversation. That's a whole other topic, right? But find somebody that is practicing themselves, that you see living a life and reflecting a life of authenticity, not just going to charge your credit card and meet you for four hours and then give you a certificate. I'm going to be honest. I'm ready to learn more from Perna about Reiki and the practice because it sounds so incredible. Do you have any experience with Reiki? Just one time, but that is a different perspective of it being a practice. I've had the treatment of Reiki done to me, which that is like energy healing work. So you lay on a massage bed. And my holistic healer, she does the energy work with the energy tools, but also like with her hands and her energy that is connected to a higher power. And so it's about an hour session, but that's as much as I've done with Reiki. But what you just shared, I really love that, especially the part about your healing being your work. And then what also resonated with me throughout that whole thing is just for today means being in the present, right? Today in the present, these are the things that I'm focused on. I love that. In order to address those things, reduce that stress, concentrate, focus, stay grounded, boost confidence, we have to master our minds. Master our minds. That also makes sense that like mastering our minds is not something that you can do in an hour session. It's a routine, a ritual, a practice. Absolutely, right? One of my devotions that I read in Proverbs every month says the first organ that we master is our mind. 
because what we think we become in our behavior, in our words, in our hearts. So I resonate with that 100%. And then what mastering your mind looks like, you know, for me is positive affirmations every day, being able to practice my routine every morning, right? You know, pouring in. And I do that through devotion, through stretching, through positive affirmations, through dance therapy, through whatever it is that fills me up and puts my mind in a constant state of positivity, gratitude, clarity, just clearing out that space, right? And so you have to spend time. It is an investment. Absolutely. She talked about, too, with her practice that she always starts at heart center. A Reiki practice looks like a routine or ritual. I love to swap those words. So a Reiki ritual is going to consist of me sitting and coming to my heart space, setting intention that I receive what I need through that practice. And then I'm going to chant the Reiki precepts in Japanese, in English, whatever you prefer. But I like the Japanese and the Sanskrit chants because then the mind doesn't have an association with it. It kind of cuts through that lower frequency like a machete. And then you get the frequency of the thing. And then I'm going to do breathing techniques. The main technique that I teach at level one is breathing down into what they call in Japanese the hara, the H-A-R-A. Hara literally means low abdomen. So a few inches below the navel, think of a sumo wrestler, right? In that sumo stance, that power stance. This is how I think of my little 130-pound self, right? As a sumo connected to that earth center, completely grounded there. And so if you came to knock me over, you can't knock me over. I'm strong. I'm sturdy. I'm stable, right? So these practices help to stabilize, help to draw energy down from the mind, increase our intake of breath, of key, of life force energy. And so what that does is that helps us to remove stagnation through the energy body. So then the practice would consist of a breathing technique. There are some moving techniques that if you've seen Qigong or Tai Chi, it might look similar to that. Then you close, coming back to the heart always. No matter what practice I'm doing or teaching, it begins and ends at the heart space with the practitioner, the student coming there, and then giving thanks for receiving exactly what they've needed. That's beautiful. So what issues does Reiki address? So if I am listening and I'm like, uh, okay, that sounds great, but like, what does it do for me? Well, what do you want it to do for you, I guess, would be the question, right? A lot of our physical issues and mental health issues come from lack of connection to source, to energy, to interconnectedness, to listening to our bodies, to understanding our own needs, to cultivating boundaries, to speaking up for ourselves. So it really helps address any issue you have, Reiki can assist. Now, if you come in, it's not going to cure your cancer if you have cancer, right? Reiki doesn't diagnose. 
But what Reiki does is it helps support it boosts immune system. It helps to relieve stress. It helps you sleep better. It helps you concentrate and focus. That's a huge one. It helps you stay grounded in a world that feels like a turbulent wave, right, always crashing against us. Um, it helps you release those things that are no longer serving you. It helps you remove old programs from your own inner psyche that are causing you harm and affecting the way you relate to yourself and the world around you. Boosts confidence. Of all the practices I've taught over the years, that's the one that students report back to me that it has been the most life-changing for them. It sounds incredible to me. It makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Yeah, it does. What it made me think about, I think we all have different practices for how we ground ourselves. But in that moment, as you were describing it, I envisioned me beginning to go outside every morning in my bare feet and grounding myself in the soil. And it might be something now that I have that vision, I may start doing that. It is incredibly powerful to connect our physical bodies to nature in whatever way that looks like. If you think about throughout human history, we spent a lot of time in collaboration with nature and modern society has separated us in many ways from our life source, honestly. I like to envision in meditation that I'm growing roots into the earth like a tree. Connectivity. Right, exactly. I love that. So we talked about another healing modality that she practices, which is past life regression. So mediumship and intuitive abilities come to play a great deal in me understanding how to help the person. I have a fun little psychic trick where I can see like a roadmap on top of people's heads. I guess that's the best way I could explain it, right, to put it into terms. And so I can see people's trajectories. If you do this, you're going to do this. If you do this, it's like counting cards kind of. Right. And so when people come to me for spiritual mentorship, for counseling, they've got some issue that they need support with. I can really quickly narrow down the obstacles, what's going on. And I don't always tell people what I see because I want people to be supported to come to their own realizations. But I help guide people in a way that my intuitive skills inform me on how to help them what their potentiality is, what has been going on to lead up to these problems. And that's separate from past life regression therapy. Past life regression therapy is really a theory. The way memories work, it's pretty fantastic. Every memory we have is a collection of many things. The experience, the perception of the experience, the way we recall the experience, right? How many times have you been in a group and each person remembers that shared experience differently? And that as time goes by, you recall that experience and your memory changes of it. So past life regression therapy is a theory, but it's proven scientifically to create lasting change in current problems. It gives people an opportunity to understand why they do the things they do why the relationship dynamics exist in their life that they do. You know, maybe there's a certain person that they want to understand that 
relationship. It helps people to go back into their memory bank. So in the subconscious mind, it's theorized that we store all of our memories, past, present, future, everything. The subconscious mind is a storehouse of information of our timelines. And I always say to people, well, if you can conceive that you've been born once, why is it so hard to conceive that you've been born more than once? Right. And not even trying to talk people into the theory of reincarnation. We just know that this therapy works. And so I guide people through using a script, depending on what their issue is or what their target is, what their interest and focus is that they want to understand or heal or fears and phobias that might be unexplained, chronic health issues. This gives people an idea to tap into their creative, imaginative memory and subconscious mind and then they have visualizations and so whether it's a memory of 2000 years ago how would i say that how would i know i can't say definitively yes you were queen victoria you know of the desert 2000 years ago but what happens is people report massive shifts in present day perspective by using this modality and it's pretty phenomenal so what I hear you saying is even if you don't believe in reincarnation, you can benefit from past life regression therapy because what you're doing is tapping into your subconscious. And whether those stories are memories or whether they are stories you're creating to address woundedness, you can heal from this modality by addressing scripts, visualizations, that are present in your subconscious. 100%. And the thing with the conscious and the subconscious mind, the conscious mind is where most people reside, right? It's that analytical mind. It's that very limited mind. It's always judging. It's critical. It's analyzing. And we need that. But do you know that's 10% of our mind? And 90% of how we relate to the world around us is actually in our subconscious mind. Our subconscious mind is timeless, is limitless, is not bound by the constraints of the conscious mind. And so during hypnotherapy or past life regression therapy or even meditation, we go into these deeper trance-like states and we go in and out of these states all day long, by the way. When you're driving and you get to the place and you're like, shit, how did I get here? I don't remember the drive, but you got there. Your conscious mind that's analyzing goes offline a bit and bears down. And your subconscious is doing the driving. That doesn't mean you're not in control. Actually, you have a heightened sense. Because think if you're driving and somebody swerves in front of you, you're going to act very quickly and respond to that. And so in these past life regression situations or hypnotherapy settings, you are very much in control. But yes, 100%, you are tuning in to your ability to understand at a deeper level whatever the challenges that you're facing in your everyday life, that the conscious mind is just too limited to understand and really reprogram. I had a spiritual teacher once, Swami Prem Sada Shivananda, and he said, you know, the problem with humans is we think we can think our way out of thinking. It just doesn't work that way. We spend so much time in our conscious mind, our analytical mind, unaware of the impact of our subconscious mind. I'm new to the past life regression, but I've heard a few people talk about it here lately, and I'm interested in learning more. 
because I do believe that there are a lot of things at play and that contribute to how we do show up and how we present ourselves. I find it really fascinating, too. So an analogy is for the indigenous people of the Americas, they had a way in which they planted plants. And there were stories around the way they planted plants and plants they planted together. And then colonizers developed different ways of planting. And science is just now proving, hundreds of years later, that the ways in which indigenous peoples planted the plants is actually the healthiest way for the soil and for the plants that colonizers didn't know, right? And they thought their way of doing things was better. And the reason that I bring that up is that there are often ways in which we know stuff works. We know that it is healing, but we don't know why because science hasn't caught up yet, right? So I think this is a great example in that there has been scientific proof that past life regression helps but we don't know why. And part of the reason we don't know why is because we don't really know the subconscious mind scientifically very well, right? We know some things. And whether it is that you are going to a past life, if you believe in reincarnation and you are actually, you know, going to that past life, or whether you are creating stories in your subconscious mind that allow you to heal, does it matter? All we know is that it works. Sometimes new isn't always better. Right. (laughs) And Native Americans or indigenous people of America, they were in co-creation with nature, with the ancestors. It wasn't about efficiency and capitalism. Easy isn't always better. Right. It's always about the journey. Right. And if we try to cut corners or go at it fast, you know, we can miss a lot of things that are really pivotal to understanding why something is the way that it is, why something works the way it works. So that makes a lot of sense. I think in Western culture, we are programmed to believe that the world is a certain way. And Eastern modalities often challenge that. The idea of reincarnation really challenges our Western idea of life, death, heaven, hell, right? And When we limit our belief system, you know, totally on science, and if it's not provable, I'm not going to talk about it. When we limit our belief systems, we close doors. And so I don't know if we reincarnate or not. I can't possibly know. But what I do know is that science is showing that this type of healing modality has lasting effects. I don't know. I don't know, just like you and... I think being open is healing in and of itself. Absolutely. What is suffering, right? Suffering is attachment and desire and attachment to a belief system and a structure can create suffering, right? So being open to the possibility that there are things out there that we don't know, right? I don't know what I don't know and allowing new information to be present and look at it is an important part of growth. It's that simple. So we also talked about getting into our shadow and that healing is not always love and light. We live in the Western world that is just rife with spiritual bypassing and spiritual superficiality. It's not always addressing the problem. It's putting a Band-Aid on the broken arm. It's wearing the mala beads and the namaste t-shirt and then going out and continuing to harm yourself, not digging into the shadow. I'll use the example of like the love and lighter community. 
And again, I'm not trying to throw shade here, but the point is we need to get into that shade. We need to get into our shadows. That's where the real healing, I think, works. We can't just always address things with love and light. I think love and light is a side effect of going into the depths of hell first and going into your shadows and walking into those places that's uncomfortable. So I think a lot of spiritual bypassing and spiritual superficiality, you see this inability to confront the hard things and to be uncomfortable. But then the presentation, the outward expression appears to be very You know, we're wearing all the things and we're saying all the right words, but still that's a veil and a mask that there's still a great deal of shadow work that needs to be done behind it. I wanted to touch on that because I think that there can sometimes be a perception about what spirituality is. And when we're in talking in healing spaces, it is the shadow. It is the shadow work. And shadow work is going to the depths and feeling the feelings. And confronting yourself where you are. I think a lot of bypassing happens because people want to be perceived that they're somewhere they're not. So you just got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and get really down and dirty and really honest and confrontational, not in the way that we use that word, but your willingness to confront those things that make you uncomfortable is really the sweet spot, I think, for healing. What do you think the difference is between, quote unquote, fake it till you make it? And spiritual bypass. Ooh, I think that's the same thing. I think fake it till you make it. I say feel it till you heal it. Feel it till you heal it. I personally put a lot of my process out there. So I'm pretty open with the fact that I can celebrate myself for where I am today versus where I was seven years ago. But also understanding that the healing process is very much a process. And there are going to be days and there are going to be times where I'm not feeling love and light. I'm sitting in something that came back up around again, and I think it's important to talk about that. Can you talk about the fact that as a healer, you are creating safe spaces for other people, but you also are on the healing journey, right? So how do you balance that so that it doesn't appear as spiritual bypass, right? It is authentic. Absolutely. Well, I had a realization a couple years ago that I was only sharing a part of my experience. I was only sharing the shiny part in social media land. And I was like, oh, shit. Even though I'm not bypassing, I'm only showing the side effects of all of this deep, guttural, painful, like on the floor in fetal position at my altar work. And so I vowed to myself, okay, rip that mask off. You don't need to look perfect and pretty and put together. What people need to see is the disaster behind it and the work behind it. And so I committed to becoming more vulnerable Because it does take a lot of vulnerability to put yourself out there. At least it did for me. And if you're putting yourself out there and you don't feel vulnerable, come and coach me on how to do that. Because it feels very vulnerable, like you're standing naked. But I did a photo shoot a couple years ago in which I actually was out standing naked. And it was the most liberating thing. And so I find ways to share my experience as a student of these modalities first and how I utilize them in my life. What happens when I get off? I just created a post on Instagram, actually, and showed people my healing room 
with this big copper pyramid and my yoga mat and my altar and said, you know, because I just got done with a move and my spiritual consistency just dropped. And I had COVID in February. So I, you know, I had all these excuses and reasons and they were valid. But the side effects of that, I've been sharing the side effects of me being off my spiritual practice and how shitty I have been feeling and then how proud I am of myself. I've done my spiritual practice for five days in a row now. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there I am. All right. So I think it's just being vulnerable and sharing your honest, all multifaceted sides, not just the shiny, pretty ones that will help encourage others. We always talk about it, but there's seasons in the journey, right? It's almost like a roller coaster. You have the moments where you're going up, you're ascending, and then you're about to be at that tip and you have all this insight, right? You have this high level view of what's going on and that kind of seems really cool, but scary and exciting at the same time. And then you start to descend. (laughs) You're like, oh shit, like I'm not ready for this. Looks like we're about to plunge. You might go in some circles and some loops and hoops and everything Then you might be coasting. It's just like... Going back to being open, you just have to be open on the journey because there's going to be all of these seasons that you go through, just like the Midwest, right? In Dayton, (laughs) we will get winter, fall, summer, and spring in one day. Be open. Don't get so comfortable in one season. You have to be open. You have to be ready to pivot. Be flexible and go with the flow. Absolutely. And I think, you know, many of us, we want to look good. We want to avoid looking bad. And so we only share or only talk about the love and light, the good parts of healing, the good parts of the journey or the good parts about us. Right. We want to share our triumphs. And the truth is that shadow work is really critical and important. And what shadow work really is, is it's examining the side of us that is wounded, that needs our attention. I actually ordered a couple of months ago a shadow work journal from Amazon that I haven't cracked open yet just because I haven't had the time to be present because I want to be present in that shit when I got to go dark you know what I mean I need to be prepared for that but I am looking forward to going into doing more intentional shadow work it's been happening like you said it's not all love and light and sunshine and all of that is I've definitely experienced the darkness but I'm really looking forward to that shadow work journal just because I know that it's going to help me to connect more dots and to understand myself a little bit more the subconscious and the shadows that I have you know what I mean yeah it's so important so she left us with this help a host of people, right, from all walks of life, from all socioeconomic statuses, from all backgrounds, because the binding point there is we all have challenges as humans and we need support. And so I think a lot of times people are fearful to reach out and fearful to have support because we still are light years behind in Western medicine and the Western world and really supporting people when they say, hey, I'm having an issue. I need help. So whoever is listening, whether you reach out to me or to somebody else, do yourself a favor and do the hard thing and reach out and find support. That is imperative, right? We do not heal in isolation. That's the hardest part, I think. And then obviously, I mean, we do hard work, (laughs) but it's intentional. And I think a lot of times people 
get so sick and tired of being so sick and tired and so burdened and not living the life they want to live. And um, we see a lot of that, right? So reach out, reach out to me, reach out to somebody else. And let's explore how we can support you. Incredible. I'm so grateful that you invited me to be a part of this. I want to honor you and you and everyone that is doing the work. So the yous out there that are listening as well, I want to honor you and bow to you and just keep doing the work, keep showing up in spite of what our culture says and what these programs want us to believe about ourselves. Just keep doing the damn thing. We got to keep doing the damn thing. Got to keep doing the damn thing. Do it afraid. Do it afraid. I want to give a huge shout out to Perna for joining us today. She gave a lot of tips and tools. If you want to learn more, her information will be in the show notes. Perna, thank you for sharing with us today. This has been Tears, Tides, and Transformation. I am Bridget Flaherty. And I am Kiana Daniels. Thank you for being a part of this journey with us. Transform through the tears, the audacity of you going through it all, the audacity of you trusting self all along. I see through life, I see.